burnout is an accumulation of stress related to the idea that like basically you should just work all the time and any time that you're not working is bad and any time that you are working is good. Workism is the idea that work should be the nucleus of our lives, the centerpiece of our identity, and the fundamental organizing principle of our society. Hello, welcome to Zoclan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. And happy holidays. Uh, we're doing a re-air today. And it's a re-air of probably my favorite episode of the year and a lot of people's favorite episode of the year. It's definitely one of our biggest of the year. And it's a conversation I had with Anne Helen Peterson of BuzzFeed and Derek Thompson of The Atlantic about work. Um, Anne Helen Peterson wrote the big piece that started the entire idea of millennial burnout, and she's done a lot of amazing work. I think she covers in a very interesting way what it is like to live in this age of capitalism better than really anybody else right now. Um, Derek Thompson wrote a great piece for The Atlantic about workism and trying to understand how work becomes an identity. And I think the way these two ideas work together helps explain a lot of how people feel right now. I thought this was a nice piece to re-air over the holidays because maybe you're home with family. This is a, an episode that I think helped a lot of people, certainly helped me think a little bit about how we live our lives, how we have been brought up to value different questions around work, around family, around how we spend our time. And if you've, you're having some time over the holidays, it's a good time to reflect on that and at least to try to see what kind of ideological water you're swimming in. So here, without further ado, is Anne Helen Peterson and Derek Thompson. And Helen Peterson, Derek Thompson, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So I've been wanting to do this conversation for a while uh, because you guys both wrote really remarkable pieces that are about different ways in which Americans view work right now um, and maybe the ways in which it is eating away at our souls. So, Derek, I want to start with you. you. You wrote this piece arguing that in the past century, our conception of work shifted from jobs to careers to callings, from work being a necessity to a status to a meaning. Can you unpack that a bit? Sure. So here's a brief history of work in the U.S. 200 years ago, we were an agrarian economy, and that means that most workers did the same things that their parents did and the same things that their great-grandparents did. There was no sense of multi-generational growth or even single-generational growth. Every job was just a job. You were a farmer. You worked on a farm, and everyone in the history of your family had done the exact same. The very idea of a career, of a, a narrative arc of progress within one's working life is an invention of the 20th century. This idea that we should be working toward, for example, a, a set of acronyms, VP, SVP, CEO, that's a very, very modern idea. But in the last, say, 30 to 40 years, I think, there's this creeping sense that anything short of a vocational soulmate is essentially a wasted life. And that is what I call workism. It's this idea that work should be the center of our lives, our identities, and our society. And I think that it's only in the last half century that modern secular elites have codified this idea that the meaning of life should be found in work. So, and I want to jump to where your piece starts off now. What is millennial burnout and, and how does it differ from just people in past generations saying, I'm working a lot, I'm tired? You know, the way that I've been thinking about millennial burnout is like a demarcated, different than Gen X burnout, different than boomer burnout, because, yes, throughout history, people have like worked a lot and been like, I'm working too much. I attribute this feeling, which I think most people 
until my piece maybe wouldn't actually call burnout. It's more just like our base temperature and how we go through lives, our lives as an accumulation of stress related to the idea that like basically you should just work all the time and any time that you're not working is bad and any time that you are working is good. Um, that's a, a maxim that I learned in graduate school that we just said like everything bad is good, everything good is bad. Uh, <laughs> plus like stifling student debt loans that um, limit our ability to uh, make decisions that might make us a little bit happier or to, you know, even have the superfluous income that could alleviate burnout, whether that is through things like hiring a babysitter, which, you know, now I hear babysitters cost like $20, $25 an hour, which still is startling to me as someone who used to babysit for $2 an hour. Then the third thing is this kind of ambiguous social media panopticon where you have to be performing your work-life balance and performing leisure, but also be performing like killing it at your job. And part of that is very much like this educated bourgeois level where you are performing that that balance. But I think it's still part of the pressure that's associated with it. And then the other thing that I should add, and that is the center point of, of my piece and why it focuses specifically on millennials, is that we were raised and optimized to be working all of the time and then graduated right into um, either the beginning of or the tail end of or the after effects of the 2008 recession. So, so much of our adulthood has been stalled, like our reaching the, the milestones that are associated with you know, American bourgeois adulthood have either been uh, put off or unattainable altogether. So something that, that you mentioned, Anne, is student debt loans and then $25 babysitters. Uh, Derek, you were talking about one of the key data points in your piece being that people at the upper end of the income scale are the ones who have decided to buy more time to work with the, the, the money they're actually they're making. Are Is what both of you are describing a culture of work in America, a culture of work in a generation? Or are we actually talking about something that's a culture of work in a particular substrata? of this generation and, and and the upper point of the income ladder? So my perspective from the feedback from my essay, because I've received thousands and thousands of, of emails in response, is that it's most heightened in America, but it also has purchase in specifically India and Ireland. And that to me is really fascinating. And part of it has to do with an upwardly mobile middle class in India. I think if the piece could be translated into Chinese and circulated in China, we might have a similar response there. But then the Ireland thing really fascinated me because, like, why not the UK, right? And so the people who emailed me from Ireland, I asked them, I was like, what? Why Ireland? What is going on here? And they said that so much of it has to do with the influx of tech companies into Ireland because of the tax structure and all the other things that make Ireland a, a haven for places like Apple and Facebook and other um, organizations. So they have transplanted what seems to be like a very American conception of work and leisure time onto Irish culture. So that that's really interesting. Um, and then the other thing I think is that so much of this just has to do with capitalism. And I don't think that it, even though it manifests differently for people who are upperly mobile in the middle class, um, you know, the idea that you have to always have a side hustle, that's something that is across classes. I, I mean, probably not the, the most upper class, but 
it might be different hustles, but it goes up and down the class register. And how about for you, Derek? Do you, do you think that the way where work transmutes into somebody's identity, is that equally distributed or is that something that's really, you're only talking about a part of the population? So first I want to take a look at the global picture. The concept of a calling comes from Martin Luther. It comes from the Protestant work ethic. And obviously there's many, many Protestants who live outside of the U.S. That said, the U.S. is, I think, in some ways exceptional in the way that it looks to work and the way that it values work, both at the individual level and at the public policy level. No large country uh, in the world that's as productive as the United States averages more hours of work a year. And the gap between the U.S. and most other countries in the OECD is growing. So annual hours worked per employee fell about 40 percent in Germany, the sort of industrious heart of Protestantism, but only by 10 percent in the U.S. And even in 2005, uh, Sam Huntington um, the political scientist who came up with the theory of the clash of civilizations, who also wrote this book called Who Are We? about America's national identity, he pointed out that Americans work longer hours, have shorter vacations, get less in unemployment, disability, and retirement benefits, and retire later than people in comparably rich societies. So I do think that there is something that distinguishes the U.S. from a lot of other countries that are similar to the U.S. in Europe and in Canada. That said, in the U.S., it's absolutely the case that workism, at least as I'm defining it, is an elite phenomenon. It is something that was first discovered to be happening among rich men. That said, I think there's also some evidence that it's starting to happen among rich women. There was a paper that came out at the end of 2018 that looked at what is the benefit of attending an elite school. If you get into University of Michigan and you get into you know, Virginia State and you also get into Harvard— What's the financial benefit of going to Harvard? And the upshot was this. If you're a relatively rich guy, no benefit. If you're a minority or a poor person, there's a large benefit to going to Harvard. But if you're an upper middle class or rich woman, the benefit of attending Harvard isn't that it makes you more productive or richer on a per hour basis, but rather that it makes you work more hours, especially after you have a kid. That essentially the upshot of, a, of an elite college education for upper and upper middle class women in the U.S. is that it makes them more careerist after becoming a mother. So I do think that there is this, that this, this idea is, is sort of spreading from, you know, just rich men to all of the elites. And then I also think that, that the concept of workism, the idea that work should be a centerpiece of, of our society, is visible in our public policy. It's visible in our the, the way that we've sort of uh, made sure that welfare is attached to the labor force, that health care is attached to the labor force, that there aren't nearly as many universal benefits in the U.S. as there are in similarly rich and similarly advanced European countries. And so I see workism not only as this sort of individual phenomenon that's happening among the elite, but also as a public policy phenomenon that is affecting all of us. So one of the things I was thinking when I was rereading your article and that statistic about how it's rich men um, and maybe increasingly rich women who are working more, as I thought to myself, I was like, so maybe the rich women are, you know, not their stats aren't quite as much as men, but that discounts how much work they are doing in the home in addition to all of those hours that they are doing in the office, right? So, like, let's say, you know, a rich man is putting in a 60-hour work week and a rich woman maybe is doing, like, 55, but then she also is still 
um, carrying what's called like the mental load, which means keeping everything that needs to be done for the house and for domestic duties in her head. And this is, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing. Sometimes I'm sure a man takes that responsibility or in a, a same-sex household, it's different. But that to me, like this is part of the reason why this article, I think of it, like I think of talking about burnout as a feminist issue is because women are carrying an incredible amount of mental labor in addition to all of these increased workloads. So to me, obviously, both gender, many, like you can burn out and any sort of identity, <laughs> but women are operating with more acute levels of burnout and don't know how to phrase it because it's just like, this is just life. Like, this is just what contemporary motherhood looks like. Yeah, I'm so glad that Anne made that point. I do think it's essential to say that a society that celebrates and idolizes success at the office is almost destined to undercount work that doesn't take place at the office. Like most advanced countries give new parents paid leave. The U.S. at the federal level guarantees no such thing. Like many advanced countries do ease the burden of parenthood in some way with national policies, but U.S. public spending on childcare and early education is near the bottom of international rankings. So I think in many ways, what I'm pointing out is an emphasis on celebrating success at work and celebrating a certain definition of work that overlooks the very fact that, as Anne just said, there's a lot of non-salaried work that is taking place that I don't think we dignify nearly as much as we should. I, I want to try to synthesize the two things that you guys were, were both bringing up in, in different ways there, because it's part of why I wanted to have you both on the show at the same time. And one of the things that really struck me about, about your piece, Anne, is the way in which it conceptualizes a much larger space of what people feel to be work than the conversation often does. And I think that goes to, to your point about the, the labor share at home, but also goes to this idea of you're doing a kind of work when you're on social media curating a public-facing identity. You're doing a kind of work when you're just doing the day-to-day the -day errands of life, right? When you're going to the post office, when you're you know getting, getting shoes fixed. And that there's this way that as work becomes an identity – it's not a job. It's work, right? It's not a. It's it's not how you make money. It's how you prove that you have worth in the world. That once that happens, then everything can get filtered through the same lens. And I've been thinking a lot about, um, particularly your piece and the idea of boundaries. That as work becomes, as Derek puts it, a, a place of meaning and a place of identity. Well, there are no boundaries on that. There's boundaries on a job, but there aren't boundaries on an identity. And that part of why everything feels so grueling and why these things all feel connected is that. That the way we've come to, to reconceptualize this has just taken all of the boundaries off of it. And so now people, you know, they have like household Asana. Um, I don't know. What, what do you call an Asana <laughs> app? Is it like, you know, productivity software where they're not only yeah. like on it is not only what they have to do for work, but what they have to do for the kid and for themselves and go to the doctor and everything becomes part of the same thing. And once it does that, then it's endless. Then there's then there's no place to escape. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that people describe to me and that I even, you know, applied to how I was feeling is that it all becomes this endless to-do list. It becomes flattened. 
And so nothing feels joyful. Nothing feels like, you know, the worst. It all just is like affectless. And, you know, sometimes that kind of sounds like a description of depression, but I actually think it's an, an outgrowth of turning everything into work, which turns everything into identity, which also means that all of those things can be optimized. And so like even when you're taking your shoes to the cobbler, which is like my bet noir, like my thing that I struggle to do, you're like, how can I optimize this? Like what if there was an app that would make it easier for me to take my shoes to the cobbler when really a lot of things don't need to be optimized? Like they're just part of your life. You know, there people have said to me like, what is burnout? What's the line between burnout and just like being an adult? And I think that a lot of the burnout that comes from adulthood is derived from this feeling that, like, you know, not only do we need to be responding to emails and Slack messages at midnight, but we also need to be doing everything as efficiently as possible. What would I, that I think about this is that work and leisure have both become leaky, that there used to be an office where when you left the office, there was no way to bring home work. There was no way to build a Model T at home. Like, you had to leave that stuff, you know, at the Rouge in Detroit. And at the same time, you know, leisure also had its own boundaries, that it didn't make any sense to bring a book to the factory or to bring your entire, you know, radio set to the factory. But now both things are really, really leaky. You can have semi-leisure at work on Gchat, going on Spotify, looking at a YouTube video. But at the same time, you can also, you, you can't fully extricate yourself from the tentacles of work. Wherever you go with your smartphone, you are somehow bound to that world of white collar labor. Honestly, the, the, the first time when I thought about writing this piece on workism was toward the end of last year, in about November. And I remember I was sitting on the couch and having a really familiar experience, a really common experience. I'm sitting on the couch and I'm watching television and my computer is open. And I'm telling myself, I'm gonna have the TV on and I'm gonna half watch TV and I'm gonna have my computer on and I'm gonna half do work. And this is gonna be great because the leisure of watching TV is gonna take the edge off of work, but also like the presence of work is gonna mitigate the guilt of watching Arrested Development for the 7,000th time. And so the whole thing is gonna feel very symbiotic. And like at one point I, I had like this moment where I was like looking at my computer, looking at the, at the television screen and thinking, what the hell am I doing? This isn't restorative. I, I'm spending my downtime worrying about my productivity. But it's also not productive because it's fundamentally downtime. And in a larger sense, I suppose I had a realization that was somewhat akin to Anne's, which is that I felt like I had forgotten how to do leisure. Like the very concept of leisure had for me become just a part of an equation to maximize productivity hours. That I sort of internalized this lesson of the reason to spend time Restoring yourself watching TV is then to become productive at work. The reason to go on vacations is then to clear your mind so that you have better ideas when you come back to work. And this was a fairly gutting thought, the idea that at the right side of the equation sign of my calculus of life sat productivity hours, must maximize them. And I remember like I opened up a new notes tab in my Mac and I wrote down the lost art of leisure. And then I closed my laptop. And that was sort of this, the idea that was sort of spinning around in my head, this idea that I had forgotten 
how to do this thing called leisure, which should be the easiest thing in the world to do. Like, <laughs> So you had this idea that you've forgotten how to do leisure and your initial impulse is to write down an article idea. So how sick is that? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And, and as and as you and as you read, and you're like real satisfied by that, like haha, job well done. <laughs> right. It, it, the, the the logic is almost impossible to escape. Um, but but that's just it. You know, I, I confessed in the piece, and I'm confessing now. Um, you know, speaking of of religiosity, um, I I am practicing a, a semi-Catholic moment both in the piece and and on this podcast. I I am a workist. I am trying to find my way out of this problem. And ironically, the only way out is by writing about it. And my job is to is to write. So um, there's the there's, well, there's and that. <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. I mean, I like I, I was actually thinking about this yesterday. I was talking to a group of grad students um, on campus and and one of the professors said to me, you know, when I read your stuff, it's very clear, though, that you actually take a, a lot of pleasure in writing. <laughs> and it's true. Like writing for me, it is not the writing is not the work. Um, and if anything, sometimes the writing and this is why I have a newsletter because it's kind of like a release valve, like the writing can be the therapy, can be the leisure in some ways. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, so what what is the work? And it's that cluster of of. I guess bureaucracy that's around the work. Like for me, it's like my inbox is the work. Oh, I so I'm actually so glad you said this. Uh, if you have the privilege of your work, at least in theory, describes something you love doing. I mean, I wrote about politics for free long before anybody paid me. I never had the expectation Same. I would get paid to do it. I love writing and I like thinking about the issues I get to, to write about. But there's all this other stuff. And some of it is important, but a lot of it isn't. And I think it also connects to to what um, Derek was saying about work being leaky. There's a book I came across a couple of years ago called Fake Work. And like a lot of business books, it it has I think one of these ideas that you can you can like almost get from the book jacket, but it's you know whatever 250 pages. But it's about all these things that feel like work but don't actually advance your goals in any real way. And and I think about these particularly around things like Slack. Slack to me, like I'm one of the people agitated to bring Slack to my organization. I've had Stuart Butterfield, um, who's the, the CEO of that company on the show. And it, it initially emerges as this communications platform for, for workplaces. And the idea is that it's going to get rid of emails. So you're not going to have to be checking email all the time. It's a little bit more social. So there's going to be more culture in it. And just it's almost so good at doing that that it just becomes much, much, much more overwhelming than email ever was. There's much more flow of discussion. Like it, it follows you everywhere. There are notifications that are much more intrusive than the email notifications. And so now, you know, a certain amount of my day, I'm just keeping up with Slack. And Slack is paid for by my office. It's like the Vox Media Slack and my colleagues are there and it feels like I'm working, but I'm actually not. I, I would not do Slack for free. Like if you just <laughs> didn't, if I lost my job, I would not stay on the Slack. And nobody's paying me in theory to, to be on Slack. But it feels like there's a ton of stuff like that. And I think it goes to you both identify social media as part of these phenomenons you're 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 pulling out here, that there's a huge amount of everybody always feels behind because there's so much stuff they're doing that feels like work but isn't actually quite getting anything done. And so you're always behind and you're always working. And you're always a little bit addicted to these communication platforms. And the whole thing just gets into this unbelievable morass where there, you know, if you were lucky, there was something you love to do at the core of it. But five, 10, 15 years in, you find yourself doing less and less of that core thing. Yeah, I think of, uh, you know, 
My friend calls slacking LARPing your job. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you say what LARPing is for people who don't know it? Live, uh, live action role playing. So you are like performing that you are checking in um, <laughs> or like that you are part of a conversation. And I feel that compulsion sometimes. I'm like, oh, I should like say something in Slack just so that people know that I'm actually working. And this is especially true because I live in Montana and don't come into the office. So I have to in some way, like, perform that I am working. But I don't understand that compulsion in myself because shouldn't my output underline that I'm working, you know? (laughs) Shouldn't that be the evidence? And I think that, like, part of um, letting people work remotely, work on Slack, that sort of thing, is you are ostensibly trusting that that person can work as much as they need to work in order to get the work done that they need to do. But then for me, on top of that, I still feel that compulsion to to LARP my job um, so that others can see me working, essentially. I think it's, I, I love the idea of LARPing your job. And I think it's really important um, to be clear about why our jobs need to be LARPed. And it's that the whiter the collar, the more invisible the product sometimes. That like a lot of white collar jobs are marketing and advertising and thinking, just just thinking is a huge part of our job. But there's but there's not really like a visible product that comes from just thinking or from you know working on these sort of uh, you know invisible pieces of code that are going to eventually become products several several years down the line. And so I think that visualizing our work for our individual peers has become an almost mandatory part of our job so that we can visualize for ourselves what we're doing. And in a weird way, maybe in a not weird way, in a a depressing way, that takes away from what makes a job fulfilling. Like I read right after I finished the work is Peace, uh, flow by the psychologist Mihai Shikhsen Mihai. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Wait, you 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 can pronounce. I think his it's name. Mihai Shikhsen Mihai, but that, like that. <laughs> I didn't. Maybe maybe. I avoid mentioning that book. M M period C period. Um, and and he makes this point that joy from work and joy from any activity is 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 internal. It, it's it's the love that we get from the pure act of doing, and. All social media is this brutal force for externalization that like for a lot of people, the work isn't real until you slack about it. The vacation isn't real mm-hmm. until you Instagram about it. The job accomplishment isn't real until you link in about it. The, the, the engagement or the baby isn't real until you put it on Facebook. Like obviously the baby is real. But I mean, I do think that this is, we've we've come to expect that the sort of finishing touch on all these different projects of our lives, both actual work and just life, is the public demonstration of that fact on social media. But the sheer pressure of having to externalize your entire life, I think inherently takes away from the thing that has been scientifically proven to make us happy, which is just the pure act of enjoying it. And in a way, I think that this is just a a sort of implicit crime of social media is that it forces us to be external beings. It forces us to um, to always be out of the moment so that we're constantly thinking, how is this going to play among other people? And I, 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 just, I think that that is uh, a really d- depressing aspect of um, the intersection between between work and social media. Let me offer a 
I think, a related theory, but 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 slightly different on that. You were using the term visualizing uh, your work. And I don't think it's about visualization. I think that a lot of work, uh, particularly some forms of creative work, but other kinds too, they don't have easily built-in feedback. You're not talking to a customer regularly. You're not making something that you can hold. And what people want a lot of the time is feedback. And the reason I think things like Twitter and Slack and others are addicting is that the creation feedback cycle is instant. If I have an idea and I want to write it into a piece, like the the amount of time that's going to lapse between me having that idea and me hopefully getting some feedback on that, did I do a good job, did people like it, is long. It takes time. I make calls, I get edited, I have to think about a headline. On Slack, it is instant. On Twitter, it is instant. I mean, and, and this is a particular pull for journalists who are, are, are feedback machines, but but I think it is true for a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. I mean, I feel that I have a, I have a young, I have a brand new son, <laughs> very, very young, actually. Congratulations. And uh, thank you. And we're not putting anything about him on social media, but I, I find that I, I send out a lot of pictures to my family. And, and one of the reasons is that like he's not going to tell me I've done a good job if he ever tells me that for a very long time. <laughs> my mom will tell me that now, which is great. <laughs> and sometimes you need somebody to say like, yeah, it's a good job. You're up all night. It's you're, you're trying hard. And so this is why I think the idea of identity is really important here, because if what on some level we're trying to do is this very fundamental, unbelievably deep human need to have an identity and to curate that identity. And what we're kind of saying is that the identity is controlled by other people and that social media, uh, particularly if, an, if the identity is work, it, that, that's controlled by other people, right? I mean, if your identity is that you're Catholic, right, that, that's something, you know, it's, it's about belief, at least in, in, in theory. But if it's work, you know, if, to be good at your work, other people need to say that to you, your boss, your customer, somebody. Um, if social media is where we project our identities, then the success of those identities is also decided by other people's feedback. Did you get likes? Did you get retweets? Whatever it might be. And so I just have wondered, reading both of your pieces, but I'll direct this to Anne, if, if the problem here is that our identities have become sort of too big and too difficult to manage and, and too dependent on factors and people who are outside of us. And it's like that constant state of anxiety about your own identity and whether or not you have value in the world that creates this feeling that you can never stop because you're always trying to get somebody to give you this feedback that um, that makes you feel like you're, you're a real person in the world. Um, and in the end, like they actually can't. You know, I, I actually, when I think about this, I connect it to the bowling alone phenomenon, which is a reference to an, an important book uh, that talked about the, basically the decrease in loose social ties within our communities. And what that refers to is both decrease in things like church membership, but also decrease in belonging to like Rotary or um, the PEO or... Elks Club, like all sorts of different fraternal organizations that bound people into social groups. You know, most of them launched in the 19th century and experienced phenomenal growth over the course of the 20th century, especially after World War II, and then have slowly declined over the last 50 years. And I think that there is this desire for some sort of validation or um external affirmation that for a long time you got simply by feeling like you belong to something. Um, and whether that's an identity like being Catholic or an identity like being Norwegian-American or 
an identity that has a lot more to do with an actual um, spiritual relationship. So I think a lot of people would say like, oh, you know where I get my value? It is through like trying to be a child of God, right? Like trying to follow Christian ethics or Buddhist ethics or, you know, any of those more internal understandings of like, am I a good person? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing in the world? And now those forms of validation, instead of seeking them through a constant self-questioning. It's more that we're trying to, you know, question others constantly with each Instagram, with each tweet, like, how am I doing? Am I a good person? (laughs) And I think that that is always... You're constantly pinging. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's always going to be unsatisfying. But but so one thing I think is um, interesting about that is, I guess this goes back, Derek, to what you were saying about leisure. Because let me let me actually take the other side of the argument. This is how if I'm being totally blunt about my weekends, it goes for me. Um, and this is before having a kid, which does give you in interesting ways a different source of meaning. But it isn't that I don't know how to have leisure. Like, I enjoy playing the new Spider-Man game. Like, I think that's a great video game on the PS4. I I bought it a couple months ago. I think it's really fantastic. But it doesn't – there's a part of me that if I'm sitting there doing that feels that I'm being worthless, right? That, you know, and I'm lucky to have a job that at least sometimes in theory, if I get it right, there's some idea that I I can do some good in it. And so if you're not doing that, then – then what are you doing? Like, aren't aren't you being like a wasteful, like terrible person? And so I, I think as part of it, it's not that people don't know how to do leisure, but that if you're looking for meaning in a world where it can be hard to find, and we do not ascribe leisure with meaning. I mean, at best, we call it now self-care to give it sort of a, a kind of like bank shot meaning and that it's making it possible for us to work and do the other things we need to do later on. But I, I do think the, the issue is not is not about what we know how to do, but what we believe it's worth doing. If you're trying to be a person whose time is worth something, for some, you're here for some reason, uh, it, it can be hard to get away from the mental construct that you always have to be trying to create something that can last. I have two things to say to that. The first thing is that, in a weird way, video games should provide precisely what we seek in the ideal activity. That, as Sheik Mihai or whatever his last name is, um, wrote in Flow, he said, the best sort of activities provide competition, chance, and a little bit of transcendence. They take you out of your ordinary world a little bit. And in many ways, this is precisely what video games do. And I remember when I wrote my piece, A World Without Work, I wrote it slightly criticizing people who sort of withdrew from the economy and played video games, not to buy into the thesis that video games are entirely responsible for the drop in labor participation in the labor participation rate, but just I, I was slightly critical of the idea that we should be excited about a world that was pure leisure. And a lot of people, including some psychologists, told me, you know, you shouldn't slam video games so much. There's a lot of people who get very, very pure joy out of playing video games, and this shows in the research. So to, to a certain extent, it is kind of funny and, and, and fitting that you mentioned um, playing Spider-Man because divorced from that sort of, you know, meta voice in your head telling you that you should be more productive, there's lots of evidence that says that, you know, video games provide exactly what we should seek in a lot of activities. The bigger question that I think you're after and that maybe I'm after too is this question of like, what makes a good religion? I'm not particularly religious. I was brought up sort of secular reform Jewish. I celebrated Hanukkah and Christmas. Um, it was extremely confusing on a religious from a religious standpoint. And I never really thought a lot about God. And weirdly, I thought more 
about the benefits of believing in God more writing this piece than I have ever writing any other piece. And part of that was because of this idea of, and maybe you can help me refine it, falsification, that if you place the weight of your esteem on Twitter, it's going to be falsified. And if you, pla if you place the weight of your esteem on work purely, it's going to be falsified. You're going to be disappointed from time to time. You're not going to get some raise. You're not going to get the traffic that you wanted from some article. You're not going to be able to finish some project on time. Work falsifies our hopes and dreams all the time. That's just, that's just how the external world works. But kind of the nice thing about a belief system that is oriented around a spiritual being is that, you know, God never comes down to fire people. It's a purely unfalsifiable belief. And there's something really beautiful about unfalsifiable beliefs and unfalsifiable belief systems. And I do wonder whether one of the issues with workism and by extension, the need that our society seems to have for external indicators of success is that we're just destined to be disappointed by them. To the last point that you made about leisure, I try to think really hard about what kind of activities make me feel sort of the most restored and the most at peace. And in a weird way, writing this article helped me rediscover novels in a really clear way that I realize that when I am in the middle of like an absolutely fantastic reading experience, it's particularly a novel, it's far enough from my work that I can be totally immersed in it. But at the same time, I can feel like I'm sort of participating in the story and, and in the storytelling even more than I am than when I'm watching television, where I feel like it's much more of a lean back experience. And I think that it's kind of interesting to think about like, what kind of leisure experiences are the most restorative that that's that's a big part of the of the questions that that Ann and I are asking and something you brought up earlier was capitalism and I, I feel like we've kind of hit that point in the conversation where if we're beginning to talk about religions I think that's the religion and the belief framework that is at the core of a lot of this and I'd like to just hear the way you think that interacts with the 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 idea of burnout and some of the other ideas we're we're talking about here well, the thing that always struck me about reading pieces like Derek's was that there was this dream that if we got more efficient and, you know, whether that's through eliminating inefficiencies in the market or through employing robots, whatever it is, the dream was then we will work less, right? That we, uh, that capitalism taken to its end point will mean People will have more freedom and will be less beholden to the market in some ways. And that has like proven just incredibly false, right? Like the more efficient that we become, the more we work. It just cr creates more time that we can then work. And the way that I think of it is like I moved to Montana in part because I wanted to get away from some of the more burnout components of living in New York. And I freed up two hours of my day that I wasn't commuting on the train anymore. And originally, I was like, this is going to be great. I'm going to use that as, as leisure time. I'm going to like really you know, live in Montana. But instead, I just used those two hours and I worked more. And I had one of the most productive years of my career 
after leaving New York, after leaving the office. And that was in large part because of what was freed up for me in terms of of time and also feeling like since I'm not in the office, I need to prove that I am also working more, producing more. And I just like capitalism is not going to save us. Like we're not going to get to this point where we're like, oh, well, we reached peak capitalism. I guess we don't have to work anymore. And it has created especially things like venture capitalism and just the logic of how companies have to make money. Even BuzzFeed, even Vox, like places where you are expected to you know, create not just profit, but more profit every year. That's just going to mean that we're just going to have to optimize ourselves and work more every year. So the only way, I think, to push back against that logic is to really try to fight to reorient ourselves as workers towards, you know, the expectations of uh, corporations, but also just of, you know, society in general. I think that the solution, at least at this moment, is unions and more unionization and more labor awareness. But there's a whole other component that we have to have discussions about just in terms of, like, is workism our new god? And if it is, like, how do we have a healthy relationship to that? This may be the only issue where Anne and I come at it from slightly different angles. Um, We may ultimately agree at the end. I just have a slightly different way of conceiving it, perhaps. So my issue in general with blaming capitalism— for pretty much anything, isn't that I think capitalism is blameless, but that capitalism is so many different things that I think it's really important to be concrete about what exactly it is that we're blaming. For example, Anne has a a really strong critique, not only in this piece, but throughout her work, about the effect of student debt on this generation. The rise in student loan debt has clearly introduced millions of of millennials and uh, soon-to-be Gen Zers to the kind of precarity that might have been previously reserved for poorer classes. I think that's true. But why did student debt increase? It increased because states cut their support for higher education. It increased because of some administrative bloat at public universities. It increased because of lax regulation at for-profit universities that essentially larded up lots of uh, young Americans and actually um, uh, middle-aged Americans as well with uh, with student loans and didn't uh, graduate them from, from quality programs. All those things are clearly, clearly capitalism compatible, but none of them are mandatory components of a free market system. Several European countries, for example, offer free college. Several European uh, countries offer a free tuition, but they also have a lot of the features of capitalism. And so I do think that to the extent that we're blaming capitalism, I want to be specific about what it is exactly about the system that is causing this obsession with work or this burnout. Um, Anne said, for example, that the more efficient we become, the more we work. That's not entirely true in some countries. Uh, In Europe, for example, in Germany, the number of hours worked per year has fallen by 50% in the last 70 years. We can work less under capitalism. We just need to make different political choices. And I think unions are a really big part of this. Unions are fantastic at advocating uh, for a better compensation for their workers. I would love an emphasis of the labor movement of the future to be not only better compensated work, but also less work. 
I think we can do it. I think we are rich enough as a country to have extraordinary universal benefits for healthcare, for childcare, for simply the existence of children, just a, a, a simple cash benefit for the very existence of a, new, uh, of, of a new child, and that we can use that to subsidize fewer working hours such that work by definition will become a less central part of our life because it will become a less central part of our week. And we can relearn to recentralize leisure in our lives and find identities that don't flow so exclusively through the, this, through, through the office and through our jobs. So I agree with so much of this, but I do think, like, especially for the nation as a whole, like for us, it's very normal to talk about capitalism as, as one of the root ills. Uh, but I think most people, and if you look at the vast majority of self-help books um, or you know blogs, whatever, that is trying to approach this idea of burnout or workism, they don't want to name the actual—they don't want to think about the fact that, like, our economic system is part of the problem, right? So it's all of this neoliberal idea of, like, how can you modify yourself to better adapt to the system that exists instead of how can the system change— to actually fit, uh, you know, how humans <laughs> survive on the world. And so I think that, like, you know, we have to remind ourselves that saying the C word actually has value. <laughs> and, you know, even in my piece, I was careful in part because it was intended for, uh, you know, a very mass audience just in terms of, like, what Buzz BuzzFeed's audience is is always going to be slightly different than what the Atlantic's audience is. But, I, you know, I, I wanted to talk about, oh, maybe there's a reason why millennials are really interested in Bernie Sanders, right? <laughs> but not kick people out of the piece by being like, capitalism is evil, here's the problem, Marxism is the way forward, like, unions all the way, right? Like, so how do we say the C word while also pointing to the fact that, like, I'm not saying we need to have a Marxist overthrow, but I am saying that, like, our the primary relationship that needs to be altered is our relationship to work. And I think one of the ways, as you point out, that unions can do this is, again, not just higher compensation, because, like, for me, I get paid more. That doesn't mean that, I've wor that I work less. It means that I want to work more to, you know, merit what I am being paid. But small things, like one thing that we're discussing uh, as our union is still struggling to be recognized. But one thing that we would like is something like mandatory time off after reporting a tragic event. And it has to be mandatory because so in my case, I happened to be in Austin when the Sutherland Springs shooting happened and I was I was there on vacation and someone called me and was like, can you go down there? I said, of course, and went down there and covered it for three days. And then, you know, of course, my, my manager was like, if you need some time, you can take it. But what as workaholics or as uh, burnout <laughs> behavior, I say, of course, I don't need that. Right. Like a way to demonstrate that you are a stronger worker is by not taking the time that is offered to you. And the only way that you can kind of force uh, people who have internalized that logic to take that time is by making it mandatory. And that's something that a union can advocate for. One thing that I think this gets at is and this is the way my thinking has changed a lot in the last five or 10 years is that when we're talking about capitalism, we're not just talking, to, to your point, Derek, about different systems. It can be oriented in different ways. But we're actually talking about different things. Are we talking about the tool of markets or are we talking about a philosophy? 
And one of the ways in which I've become a little more capitalism skeptical is, you know, for a lot of my time as a journalist who covered economics a lot, I, I thought of capitalism primarily as covering markets and market mechanisms and, you know, that you tweak the policies and there are rules of the road and regulations to shape markets and all of that. And I've become more skeptical that you can separate some of the philosophy and the the worldview from the the, the tools and the mechanisms. And so, you know, I think the thing that is coming up a lot in here, and I think it comes up both in, in, in your piece and in, in, and in yours, is that we've developed, particularly in the absence of countervailing forces like religion, a capitalist view of what makes a person worthwhile. And that view is its productivity. And so we filter a lot of things through it, not just work, but non-work, being at home, being with your children, um, you know, trying to life hack your way to not just living longer, but sleeping better. I mean, there's this incredible and I'm part of it. Right. I, I, I consume I hoover this stuff up, these productivity hacks. And, you know, and now there's all this stuff about limiting your social media time and meditation as a way to um, as a way to increase your ability to focus and do psychedelics, not to not to experience new ways of sensory perception, but because you can microdose and increase your creativity a little bit. And part of the the thing that I think is hard is that all of these decisions we make, decisions about what kinds of policies we're going to implement and what kinds of jobs we're going to take and whether or not we're going to ask for that time off, they happen within this overarching structure and belief system. And it's that that ends up shaping the decisions. And so, yeah, we can make a lot of the decisions differently. But I think the thing that needs challenge here and needs to be, to, to Anne, your point, surfaced is this idea that we've bought in alongside the way we've run our economy into a way of viewing ourselves. And if it used to be that you were a good person because you were following the the dictates of your brand of Christianity or Hinduism or Judaism, or you're a good person because in your community, which is where you were rooted, you know, you 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 were following the the rules there. Now in a period of time where we're a lot less religious and certainly a lot less religious in an organized way and a lot less rooted in individual places. I think the thing that is swept in to give lives meaning is this um kind of capitalist inflected idea of you're productive. And to me, like it's all just getting supercharged, right? I think social media supercharges it in interesting and weird and unexpected ways. And um, the kind of globalization of everything, but particularly of culture does it. I mean, and in part, it all does it by knocking down these other ways of giving meaning and other ways of judging ourselves. But as it becomes like the last thing left, it becomes the only way we think about the world. Um, and we don't call it that, right? We call it meaning or we call it doing good or we call it being successful, but it is this way of measuring what kind of people we are. And then it's with in that context that every other decision gets made. And to me, so I'll throw this at Derek, to, to me, that's the that's the hard thing here. There's a lot of places where I kind of part on individual policy questions and mechanisms with people who I think are to my left. But the place where I think I've become a little bit more radicalized is the idea that you can have a lot of arguments about policy, but if you can't ever get out of this way of viewing what gives people's lives value and worth then you're in real trouble. And maybe you can't um, if you're continuously constructing everything around the same set of policy mechanisms. I think it's so beautifully said, and I just I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's really important to point out that this war has been fought before. In the Gilded Age, there was a really robust national conversation around essentially workism. And the battlefields were divided between gospel of work people and what you might call the gospel of play, the, this phalanx of Marxists and socialists and Christians and politicians, all of whom looked at the mainstream political and social establishment, 
which argued that industriousness was the same as ethics and said, no, 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 the pendulum has swung way, way too far toward work. We have deified work in a way that is dangerous for our souls. And they spoke about this in really religious tones. And out of this fight between gospel of work people and gospel of play people, that's my term, I don't know if that's a historical term, came not only laws about the work week and about child labor, but also a kind of Cambrian explosion in ideas about leisure. It was during this time in the late 19th century when you had the birth of the modern amusement park. Coney Island was built um, in this period. You had the birth of YMCA's, athletic clubs. You had the rise of uh, gymnastics and bodybuilding. Uh, bicycles were mainstreamed during this time. Basketball was literally invented. Baseball and croquet were taking off. And, you know, this might be unrelated. It almost certainly is. But you also had the invention of, of film in these 20 years. So ironically, whether you want to relax inside or outside today, I suppose, like shoot hoops or stream Netflix, you are sampling from the same generation of leisure invention, which is this period toward the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. And I would just love to have this conversation again. I would love for the forces of the gospel of play to come together and Avenger style, just take on the Thanos of Workus and say, we can do this. Like we can build a better world. We are so much richer. And so much smarter, well, hopefully a little bit smarter, so much richer and a little bit smarter than we were in the 1890s. We can find and build new laws that can limit the work week, that can make work more equitable, and we can be a little bit inventive and maybe invent new ways of play and new activities and new clubs that can bring us together in, in, in new ways. Like, it, it's happened before and it can happen again. And I just think it's it's important though to say like, um, we, we, we can do this. this. This is possible. We don't just have to live and sulk in the world that we've been given. Well, I don't think it's accidental that at the, the same time that those what are broadly referred to as cheap amusements, there's a great book by Kathy Pice about the, the rise of um, amusement parks and uh, film at the same time and, you know, all sorts of different things that were happening in these more public spaces, that, like, those activities were assailed as, like, places, points of, like, potential sin. And so part of that had to do with, like, women being able to, like, hang out with men in public places. Part of that had to do with the fact that, like, a lot of these places were started and owned by um, Jewish people or um, populated by immigrants. And I think that, like, there's still, even at that time— there was this real idea, you know, probably sublimated in important ways that leisure in some way led to sin, um, that it was like a gateway towards it. And even though we don't, I don't think we would have the same explicit coding of these behaviors at this time. I think that like there still would be this idea and you see it across the spectrum in politics, um, you know, even in phrases like the dignity of work, right? That like if somehow... There were people who were saying, like, actually, we should work less. Like, actually, what about a three-day week? That somehow the leisure activities that would arise in that place, it'd be like there would be a lot of anxiety over, like, well, what are the kids going to do? I mean, the same thing that they did for years and that we did when we were growing up, which was, like, ride around in circles on your bicycle, right? <laughs> um, and I, But I still think that there is this centuries-old understanding that more free time leads to, you know, an idle mind, no good 
did all of these other things. But I, I, th- I think that's so interesting. I want to go back and to something you had said a bit ago that part of your interest in writing that piece was explaining, you know, why now? Why is Bernie Sanders coming up now? Why is there all this joking about late capitalism now? And I did an interview actually yesterday. It'll be out. Um, it'll be the episode that comes out before this one with Sherry Berman. And she's a <laughs> scholar of like European social democracy parties. And I was asking her, you know, what is the difference between a, a social democrat and, you know, like a, a liberal or progressive as we think of them here? And she said, well, on policy, there's often not that much difference. The difference is that the progressives think capitalism is basically good and the social democrats think it is basically bad. <laughs> and they're not necessarily getting to super different places on what to do about it, but there is a, a quite different orientation in just how you should think about that fundamental economic system. Like, are you at war with it in politics or are you working with it in politics? And I do think that one of the the really positive things about the rise of this lefty moment is that there's an effort to push back on some very, uh, for a long time, unexamined and to this point, much too powerful assumptions about capitalism and a bunch of things we're talking about here. The thing, though, to to your point just there that, that I wonder about is I think there's a lot of interesting discourse right now about how the government should value people. Right. There's a fight between the idea that the government should value people for the work they do and that the government should value people because they are people. Right. Maybe you should get a universal basic income because you are alive and it is like worthwhile to just be able to be alive and to exist. And you don't need to do anything in a rich society to earn that. Like just like it's great that we got to this point in human history where we could provide that. But what I don't know that there's as much conversation about, at least that I see, is about how you should value you. And I, I think that's a little bit of what you're talking about there. Like, how should you think about whether a Tuesday that you weren't working was a good Tuesday for you? You know, what what gives that meaning? And again, that feels to me like a place religion used to be. And it had this sort of worry about your idle hands dimension. But There seems to be a lot of interesting political conversation. But again, like you, when I look at the self-help literature, it's it's all this kind of productivity stuff and, you know, how to better yourself. It doesn't seem to me that we have as robust a conversation about, you know, how you should value you, even even in a world where we did have a universal basic income, even in a world where we were more decent to people like how you know, how should how should you organize your day? And I'm curious if in your work on this, it led you to different thoughts on it or, or to see different thinkers on it. Absolutely. I mean, I'm in a really robust community of people who have left academia for various reasons. And one thing that a lot of them have been talking to me about is the revelation of what happens when you kind of decouple your self-value from your career or from your vocation or um, however we want to talk about it. And that, you know, when you stop getting all of your self-value from whether or not you are excelling in your workplace, it it opens up this whole new paradigm of thinking about like who who am I as a person and and what you know what makes me feel good about myself. One thing I always think about, you know, I my partner is a journalist as well, and so this I mean that kind of exacerbates our burnout. Um, it doesn't, you know, we there. It's rare that I ha- like am able to. Uh, have someone be like, you are working too much or like you shouldn't be doing this on, you know, on a Saturday at 7 p.m. because he, too, thinks of that as like normal behavior. But That's prime writing sometimes time. we'll like, <laughs> yes, nobody can bother <laughs> sometimes you. we'll we'll be like on, you know, we go on walks together with our dog and we'll be like, oh, I just didn't have a very productive day. And what for me, at least, spark, you know, sparks me to say that is. Oh, well, like I read a bunch of stuff on the Internet. Um, I kind of stared into space a lot. I didn't really write anything. 
But like, that's productive. That is part of the work. But because there is no quantifiable, like, I wrote 3,000 words today, it makes me feel like I value it less. Or even sometimes, again, because we don't go into the office, sometimes you'll put in just two hours on a particular day. And another day you'll put in 10 or 12 hours. And that should be part of the liberty of, you know, knowing, okay, I'm doing good work right now. And what if I didn't do any work for the rest of the day? Wouldn't that actually make me a much better worker tomorrow or feel better about who I am in my life? But it's it's hard to take that perspective. Something this brings up for me uh, that, that I've been thinking about a bit is how much boundaries and containers are actually important. Uh, I feel like there's been a discourse or a promise, maybe is a better way to put it, that there would be freedom as the boundaries were dissolved, particularly by technology. So, you know, you can work at a company that's based in New York from Montana. Isn't that great? And you can communicate with people from home. Isn't that great? And you can be in touch with your office, you know, on the go from your phone, wherever you are. Isn't that great? And it all kind of seemed great. And the idea is we'd be much more free because we wouldn't be yoked to our desks. And I think in reality, everybody's just much less free. And I think a lot about how much some of these feelings are just the fact that nothing is contained anymore, that there isn't these transitions from from one mode of being to to another. Um, and, and, and Derek, I th- I'd like to hear you on this a bit, because to me, part of the issue here is that as it, get, it gets, in your words, more leaky, it also gets more omnipresent. And then you're in this thing where wherever you are, the question is, what is like the strongest force pushing you at that moment? And work is a very strong force. Um, it's often stronger than the other things. And it just seems to me that we were promised that we'd be able to telecommute and we'd be able to do all these things and it'd all be so much easier and there would be abundance and and that would like shrink work down. And instead, as all the boundaries have dissolved, it's expanded it way, way, way out because now it gets to now it gets to go to war with everything else. And it has all these tools from feedback and colleagues to assignments and deadlines that the other parts of your life don't. Yeah, man, I think about this a lot. Um First, I want to talk about our jobs because I do think that our jobs are a little weird and it's important to be clear yeah. about how strange our work is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Lots of white collar jobs are leaky. Nothing is leakier than writing. I mean, the boundary between work and leisure in writing is so porous, it doesn't even exist. Like when I'm watching television or the news, Am I relaxing or am I gaining or am I getting information? I mean, I write about entertainment economics and I write about the news. So I don't even know. When I'm taking a mental health break, am I restoring myself for myself? Or am I restoring myself so that I am maximizing my productivity hours for work? Hard to know. When I'm reading a novel, even sometimes, and it's a novel by an author who I think is just a brilliant prose stylist. And a part of me is thinking as I'm reading sentence by sentence, oh my God, I wish I could steal that metaphor. I wish I could steal that simile. A small part of me is thinking, I want to steal that simile so that I can put it into my salary job. Like our, our jobs are so strange and impossible. It's, it's, it's impossible to escape from that thing that is what we do. And we're both very lucky because of that, very, very, very lucky to do something that can be so sort of permanently inspiring and permanently with us, and yet it is, an, in a small way, a curse. Um, I don't know how to get out of it, to, to, to be quite honest in a way, except to, well, I suppose there, there's two paths out of it. My somewhat glib, potentially, answer for the paths out of workism are Marx or Buddha. Those sound like strange genres, but basically... 
you can either try to solve the problem structurally in, in a Marxist way, say, we have to do this by passing laws. We have to do this by shortening the work week. We have to do this by increasing aid to non-working adults, by adding a basic income, uh, welcoming robots into the dreary office because, after all, they're replacing dreariness if they come into the dreary office, and that's going to make us happier. It's going to free us from, from the worst work. We have to solve this from a public policy standpoint. That's top-down. Or you can kind of go bottom-up and say, look— it's impossible to separate ourselves from the status-seeking world. It's impossible to sort of remove all sense of insecurity that, you know, suffering is sort of by nature the sort of de facto experience of life. And the universal basic income isn't going to change that fact, and shorter work weeks aren't going to change that fact. All you can do really is cultivate the garden of your own mind. And whether that's through meditation or therapy or uh, some other practice or through love, um, you have to make peace with the fact that the machinery of our mind was built to keep us alive and to keep us working um, towards something, not just to keep us happy. So I'm struggling, frankly, or at least uh, torn between the solutions because I do think that, you know, th these these two options that I provided, sort of the, the top-down uh, solution and the bottom-up solution aren't, um, aren't totally separate. You can work on them together, but it's not entirely clear to me what's going to unyoke us from the expectation to be, to be successful. Um, to a certain extent, I think it, it probably involves something very individual, very deep and very core to, to who we are and how we choose to, to take meaning from life. I'm curious what you think of that, Anne. Well, the skeptic in me is like, you know, the the Buddhist. Well, both Buddha and Marx have been co-opted by capitalism in some ways, right? Like we just, there are watered down ways that we try to think about it that like don't actually solve the core problem. But I also am wary of like my more academic self that just thinks in hypotheticals and like just wants to diagnose and not come up with policy decisions. Um so though I think that it's it's actually very smart to think about this in terms of, you know, what are the structural things that we can do? And then also what are the things we can do on the part of the individual? Because it's both, right? Like it's not it's not exclusively that late stage capitalism has done this to us. Like we are participants in this schema. I just think that sometimes that can translate into like okay, what are my life hacks? Like, what if I figure out how to color code my email better? Like, that will somehow fix the situation. I just read about someone who has like 60 color codes for her email. And I was like, maybe I should do that myself. And then I realized she has an assistant who does it for her. <laughs> so all of these things, you know, like all of this labor that we think of that will fix our lives, like so much of it is contingent on offloading that labor onto someone else. And then the other thing that I keep thinking about is, like, do we as, like, you know, knowledge workers of the upper middle class, like, are we just suddenly experiencing life as it has been experienced for a very long time for people who are from, um, you know, the working class? Like, just that, both in terms of precarity, in terms of just, like, the route shittiness of work, like— is are we just suddenly thinking this is a thing because it is, it is experienced for the first time in a in a, a real and prevailing way by us? And so I want to be wary of that. I don't know because like if that's the case, like what if life is just suffering under work and trying to make it as livable as possible? That seems like a pessimistic way to move forward. I actually wanted to go in that direction though. Um, I I I do want to separate the idea that uh, I do think there's a lot 
about there are certain kinds of jobs and certain kinds of, of privileged jobs that, that we're talking about here. And also, I don't think the kinds of feelings that, that, that you diagnose or, or, or Derek, that you talk about are sort of the natural state of things. Like, I, I think they're actually a sort of very modern affliction having to do with like information overload and like leakiness. And, you know, I, I don't think all, all that was true. But I do really want to focus on this point you you just made, Anne, about I wonder if part of the problem here is just expectations. I mean, how much it is a. When I read your piece originally, I, I was thinking about you know my kind of grandparents and great grandparents and great great grandparents and and what I know about their lives and just the unbelievable roughness of it, right? The kinds of work they did and how much work they did and how many kids they were taking care of on how little money. And I think about how tired I am and I think about how tired they are and I I, I like I feel like a shit. Um, and and on the other hand, one of the things that I, I, I do think sometimes is that we operate now under this idea that it is supposed to be okay, that if life doesn't feel good, if it doesn't feel fulfilling, if it doesn't feel happy, then there's something profoundly wrong you need to fix. And, you know, when I read back, um, di- you know, histories and diaries and, and older religious texts and that kind of thing, that doesn't seem to me to have been the prevailing view. A lot of it was that this life might be pretty bad. On the bright side, later on, if you're good in it, things are going to get a lot better. But th- there, there are a lot of different ways of looking at it. But I don't think people thought it was going to be good. And and I wondered in, in some of the burnout conversations how much the, the specific versions of millennial frustration have to do with a feeling that there was a way to get it right, that there was a way to win the game. And then it just turns out that there isn't, that, you know, as opposed to the light, uh, commodified version of Buddhism, the actual version of Buddhism, which is that life is suffering and wanting, craving, attachment, these things that are incredibly difficult to forget, rid yourself of even less than a little bit, um, bring you constant suffering. So basically, like every dimension of the way we are in the world is making us hurt all the time. And I just, I don't know, there's ideas of answers and then there's ideas of expectations. And I just wonder how much all of, you know, the the discourse, and, and it is in some ways like a, a capitalist inflected discourse, that if you just work hard enough at it, like you can win, um, is is part of the problem too, because then there's this huge, this huge constant sense of failure and this sense that, you know, shouldn't it be different? And if it isn't different, aren't I failing? Well, I think there's two things going on. The first is that our millennials in particular, and I think generations before us to some extent, were raised on this gospel of meritocracy, which is that if you worked your butt off in every single way, then like, yes, you would have the good life. And it doesn't matter that there are all these examples of that undercut that ideology that you would somehow be able to triumph over a system that is uh, makes most people unhappy in some way, like that still was held forth as as a possibility. So for me in academia, like I knew that the market was turning to, to absolute shit, but I was like, if I work hard enough, maybe I will be that winner. And so my incredible, heartbreaking disappointment uh, you know, it was with myself and it was also with like the the promise that I had bought that like it doesn't matter how broken the system has become, I can still beat it. And I think a lot of millennials internalized that that same idea. And it's heartbreaking, right? Anytime you realize that a, an ideology is completely false, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, and then the other thing that I think about just in terms of like previous generations and work is, you know, in Montana, there's this storied labor history which is part of the reason that Montana is reliably purple, um, something that like really confuses a lot of people who who don't know about this history. But it was mostly around mining um, in the town of Butte, which is about two hours away from me. And, and that tradition is still there today. 
But the thing about these miners, like they were doing this incredibly dirty, hard, painful, you know, backbreaking work. And it wasn't that they thought that work shouldn't be hard. It was that they didn't think they should be treated like animals while they did it or expendable labor or, um, you know, sacrifice all of those things like uh, physical, um, mental, like just years of their lives in order for people who are not them in any way to profit in incredible ways off of that labor. And so that, I think, is at the heart of what a lot of us should be thinking of is like, it's not that we should just be like blissful all the time while we're working, but at the same time, we do deserve the right not to have that labor and our willingness to do that labor, even when it's hard, be exploited. Yeah, Ezra, I, when you were talking about expectations, the idea that came to mind for me is this this concept from sociology of the revolution of rising expectations. I think there was a sociologist named James Davies who came up with this idea, who said that if you look at sort of the history of political revolutions, it's typically not the poorest who start them or the richest, but rather that the conditions for revolution tend to be most ripe when you have this long period of economic and social development that's followed by an abrupt reversal, a recession, a downturn, a disappointment. And he traces this across the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, and I think it's absolutely applicable today that if you look at what's happened with millennials, this is a group that came of age, came of awareness of the economy and of the nation in the 1990s, and then in early 2000s, took on student debt and then graduated into a labor force that was being gutted by the Great Recession. And that their disappointment and their interest in revolutionary ideas comes not only from the circumstances on the ground today, but also the circumstances on the ground today juxtaposed with the hope that they had been given in the 90s, early 2000s. And I do think that there is a way of putting together the story of this generation that on the one hand, you know, yes, millennials are coming of age at a time when there is less violence, when um, there is less war, at least here in the U.S., um, when there's lots of... Uh, material conditions that are better than they've been in decades and centuries. At the same time, this is a group that has kind of done so much right only to be screwed, that took on debt to graduate from college, that graduated into this labor force, and then heard these lessons over and over again to follow their passion and do that which, like, you know, find their calling. And it just seems to me like there's something just slyly dystopian about the picture of a generation of young Americans that takes on debt, graduates into economy, and then is told that it's all right that they're not making a terrific amount of money because no job is just a job and the only real reward in this world is the reward that comes from finding your purpose and finding your passion. That creates a system, it creates a kind of game where young people feel like they're never winning, but they have to keep playing because their passion is out there, their, their, their calling is out there, and they're going to feel disappointed if they don't find it. And so I do feel like what we're seeing is sort of a classic violation of rising expectations that from a certain historical standpoint, you would say would of course create the conditions for some kind of social revolution. Well, so the so the revolution is coming, I guess. Um, so let me let me uh, close with the the question we always use, which is, uh, you know, what are a couple of books you'd recommend? I guess I'll ask you each for two. Um, uh, Anne, why don't you start? 
Ooh, uh, well, the you know the book that was just so central to my thinking on burnout is Malcolm Harris's Kids These Days, which I just can't recommend highly enough. Um, and it does say the c word a lot, so <laughs> I think that it's a a great continued uh, reading if if someone uh, enjoyed or felt connection with my piece. The second one has nothing to do with burnout, but I think it's just like one of my foundational texts, and it is uh, the book White by Richard Dyer. And it's very similar in a lot of ways to other books that have been written about whiteness and how whiteness is kind of alighted as a race. Uh, the work that white people have done to try to de-race itself, themselves within society, but it is taking a much more um, art history and film perspective. Richard Dyer is a, is a film and cultural historian who is also coming from the uh, cultural critic tradition at the Birmingham School in the UK. So he's coming at it from a slightly Marxist bent as, as well. But he's just an incredibly accessible writer in terms of academic writers, and it is a text I return to again and again. Derek, my two books are The Vertigo Years by Philip Blom. It's a history of Europe between 1900 and 1910. That's probably my favorite history book that I've ever read and is particularly remarkable because it just shows you that uh, history is a flat circle. We have the same debates over and over and over again. And that's not proof that we shouldn't have those debates. It's proof of how important those debates are. It's so much of the conversation about around work and anxiety and speed. There was this obsession in the early 20th century that the world was moving too quickly because you have the invention of airplanes and cars that totally transformed the idea of how people can move through space. And people feel like their nerves are being shattered and they, they have to invent new words to describe the, the rising anxiety of the time. Uh, neurasthenia, a word that appeared in, in Anne's uh, wonderful essay. Um, absolutely fantastic book that, that does a beautiful job of teaching you about the sort of um, uh, eternal returns of history. And then the second book is... Um, a Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. Uh, this is not a book about work uh, at all. There, there's, there, there are parts of it that are about work, um, I suppose, but it's really about the passage of time. And uh, the reason that I wanted to name this book was I wanted to name the period of purest leisurely joy that I spent in the middle of another cultural product. And I just remember being so rapturously happy with how good a visit from the Goon Squad was as I was reading it, that it was just the right amount of challenging and 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 verbose and and just the right amount of smart that it was um it was the perfect leisurely flow, not to end on a on a purely positive psychology note, but it was it was a perfect reading experience and um and those are the experiences that 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 writing this essay and and reading Anne's piece uh, made me want to find more and made me want to be better at is is um, understanding how. Um, to, to disappear in leisure and, and leave the working world behind. Derek Thompson, Anne Helen Peterson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Derek Thompson and to Anne Helen Peterson for that great conversation. Thank you to all of you for being here, to Nina Moschella for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media production that almost never really feels like work. <laughs>